0: Once upon a time, before he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul was on the run. He was actually being chased by some bad characters, as they were called, who were pursuing him from city to city to city, and so eventually he found himself in the city of Athens. While he was waiting there for two of his traveling companions, Silas and Timothy, to join him, he had some time to kill So apparently he went for a walk along the streets, visited the marketplace, and what he saw there in the city greatly disturbed him. It was full of idols. It was full of idols. So Paul being Paul, Paul decided to do something about this. He went to the synagogue, which he often did, and he began to engage in conversation and debate with both the the Jews there and the Gentiles who had decided to worship the God of Israel. They were called God-fearers. He also went back out on the street, into the marketplace, when he would talk with people on the street corners, the Gentiles, and one time he got into it a bit with some philosophers. They were called Epicureans and Stoics. Some of them had decided that uh, Paul was a bit of a moron and a babbler, and he made no sense, but others were intrigued by what Paul was saying, and one of the things that intrigued him was that Paul had mentioned Jesus and the resurrection. He spoke this in Greek when he was talking to them, and in Greek it comes out, Jesus and Anastasis. They thought he was talking about two gods, two foreign gods, Jesus and Anastasis, so they were intrigued. Tell us more about these two gods, Paul, Jesus and Anastasis. So they took him to a meeting of the Areopagus, which is a council of elders that is made up of people who were high up in public office in the city of Athens. It was one of those places where know-it-alls got together to gossip about all the latest ideas. Paul, never one to waste an opportunity to stir things up a bit, made the most of the moment when everyone was gathered together. And I want to read to you what what he said. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown god. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. Way to go, Paul. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. See, so those last couple of verses that have gotten my attention over the past, I've read it many times, but it just stayed with me. I'm struck by Paul's statements about this God who made everything and everyone, who laid out the boundary lands and, and determined, uh, determined the, the, the appointments in history. This God did this, Paul says, <clears throat> so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Though he is not far from any one of us. God is not far from any one of us. All life <clears throat> comes from God after all. This is, <clears throat> this is true of those of us who think we are not far from God or think we are far from God. This is true of those of us who don't even care about God. This is true of, of those of us who who have done perhaps many things that we think has burned the bridge between us and God. God is not far from any one of us. God is not far from you, whoever you are. Paul is speaking to Greeks here. Gentiles. And this tells us something powerful that we need to pay attention to. For these Greeks would have known that according to the practices and the teaching of Judaism... They, the Gentiles, were not welcome. In fact, as some of you know, there was a a four-and-a-half-foot-tall wall in the temple complex in Jerusalem that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Israelites. The court of the Gentiles is that outermost space, the flat space in in the diagram there in that picture. And the dividing wall is the fence around that, known as the balustrade. You can see it labeled there at the bottom. The historian Josephus tells us that at 13 points all around that wall, there were inscriptions. Archaeologists have actually discovered the remains of two of these inscriptions, one of which the Cogswells and the Concannons have seen up close on their trip to Israel back in 2020. Kurt Kurt sent me a picture of that artifact. 13 times around this wall, this inscription warned any Gentiles, no foreigner is to enter within the forecourt the balustrade around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. Not exactly rolling out the welcome wagon, is it? Now, which of us would not feel that God was far from us if we were to encounter such a sign? This dividing wall was both a symbol and the cause of incredible division between Jews and Gentiles, and it would appear, the way they understood it, it would appear also between themselves and God. And yet, Paul says, the truth is, God is not far from any one of us, and indeed, God wants to be found by us. It's not unlike what our nation experienced in the days before the Civil Rights Movement, of the 50s and 60s. There were white churches who did not want African Americans worshiping with them. Fortunately, most of them knew that wasn't how God felt about the matter. They knew God wanted to be found and known and worshipped by them, and so they did the only thing they could do. They started their own congregations. I know of at least one congregation where that happened here in Lafayette. This kind of division and distance, both from Israel and from God, the God of Israel, is, is what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in his speech in the Areopagus and Acts 17 and in our passage in Ephesians 2 for today. Last week, Pastor Kristen told us that her her passage, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and ours, verses 11 through 22, are are parallel in structure. She used three phrases to walk us through the first 10 verses of last week, and I'm going to use very similar phrases this week as well for today's passage, for these passages mirror one another. Those three phrases are who they were, what they've been given, how we should live. First, Paul wants to talk about who they were. Verses 1 through 10, Paul dealt with their relationship with God and who they were before Christ rescued them. In verses 11 through 22, Paul directs his words more to the Gentiles in particular. Once upon a time, he says, they were excluded from God's promises and God's people. Verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now, how, how can Paul say in Acts 17 that God is not far from any one of them, but now speak of them being excluded and without hope and without God in the world? First, Paul speaks of a time before death and resurrection. With Good Friday and Easter Sunday, something radical has happened. Good Friday is what scholar, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright refers to as the day the revolution began. Something changed when Jesus died on the cross. Second, this stark division between Jews and Gentiles caused them to think that God was far from them, but this was never God's intention. No, God is the God of all nations, not just the Jewish, pe- Jewish people. The, the people of Israel were not chosen for their own sakes and their own salvation alone, but they were chosen to bring God's blessing, God's, God's name to all the families of the earth as God told Abram back in Genesis 12. Go to the land I will show you and I will make, you a, make of you a great nation, a nation through whom all families of the earth will be blessed. But this didn't happen. Instead, Gentiles were excluded from God. God. And all of God's gifts, even though God was not far from any one of them. But again, God did something. And this takes us to our second phrase in the structure of Paul's argument. What they've been given. What they've been given. In last week's passage, verses 1 to 10, they were given life. God, They were dead, but God raised them from the dead, made them alive, and seated them with Christ in the heavenly places. Paul now takes this idea of what the Gentiles have been given in Christ and he pushes it to a whole new level. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Whereas once they were separate and excluded, not only from God but from God's people, now they have been brought near by the death of Christ on the cross. But Paul has even more to say about that, so he continues in verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Not only has God made us alive, God has made Jews and Gentiles into one people. For this too is very much part of of the good news about Jesus. We, we, we are so individualized in our mindset in 21st century United States of American culture that we often cannot see that God wants a people, not just us as individuals. I've heard it said that multi-ethnic, multi-racial diversity, diverse communities of faith are the result of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a byproduct, but they are not the gospel. The Apostle Paul disagrees. The Apostle Paul disagrees. The good news is not only that we can be reconciled to God, we can also be reconciled to one another. And if Jews and Gentiles can become one people, and just so everybody's on the same page here, when I say Jews and Gentiles, there's nobody in this room that's not included in in one of those two groups. Most of us, I'm guessing, are Gentiles. There might be some people with Jewish ancestry here. Those were the two groups, still to this day, according to Judaism, the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, you're one or the other. And if God can do that with Jews and Gentiles, he can do that with any other ethnic grouping we could name. Christ is our peace, notice this, Christ is our peace with one another. He doesn't mention God here, it's true of God too, don't mis- Don't misunderstand. Christ is our peace with one another, even our enemies. And in Christ, God has made, past tense, the two groups one. Paul says this a bit differently over in Galatians chapter 3. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Back in Ephesians 2, Paul goes on to say that Christ's death has destroyed this dividing wall of hostility. Paul is referring to the balustrade we talked about earlier, that four-and-a-half-foot wall that separates Jews from Gentiles in the temple. Threatened death to any non-Jew who crossed the boundary. That's what he has in mind. That wall is gone, Paul says. But he's not so much talking about the wall itself as using the wall as a metaphor to talk about the Jewish law or the Torah. Christ destroyed this wall, verse 15 says, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. The wall is the law. The metaphor of the balustrade stands in for the real issue, the impact the Torah and its laws has had on Jewish-Gentile relationships. But it is not the law, the Torah itself, that was the problem. It is not the law that was the problem. As Paul says elsewhere, the power of sin at work in the people of Israel was to blame, not the law. The power of sin. We we hear the word sin, we want to say sins. We think of sins as something we do. But Paul has something else in mind here. It's a power. Sin. Not one sin, sin. All of it. The power of sin was at work in the people of Israel. That's what is to blame, not the law. Over in Romans 7, Paul says, we who have come to Christ are not under the regulations of the Jewish law, but he adds that that doesn't mean that the law is sinful. For example, Paul says, were it not for the law, he himself would not know that he's not supposed to covet, that he's not supposed to desire other things that other people have. Romans 7, verse 8. But sin, sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, you know, when you're told not to do something, you want to do it, Produced in me every kind of coveting. Further down to verse 11. For sin, he says the same thing again. Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment. Deceived me. Sin deceived me. And through the commandment put me to death. Sin put me to death. So then the law is holy. And the commandment is holy. Righteous and good. The law is not the problem. Sin. Sin was the problem. The power of sin at work in us took what is good and holy and righteous and and corrupted it. That's what sin does. It takes good things and it corrupts them. That's what sin did in the relationships between Jews and Gentiles. The the law was meant to make of Israel a people through whom God would bless all the families of the earth. But sin at work in the hearts of the people corrupted Israel the good and holy purposes of the law, it became a dividing wall of hostility instead. Ah, but Christ's death has put to death this hostility. Again, back in Ephesians 2, the last part of verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access to the father by one spirit God's purpose was to create one new humanity out of the two who were divided off from one another by hostility one new humanity the reconciliation of people groups in the death and resurrection of Jesus is very much a part of the gospel message. It is not only about our individual forgiveness and salvation. It is about becoming one people. And so the third thing Paul has for us in this passage is how we should live, how we should live. And with that, you may notice I switch pronouns. For now, after the work of Christ, there is no us in them, there is only us. This is not just about the people of Ephesus and Paul's day. It's about us. This is beautiful. Paul takes the very thing that was bold and impo- a bold and imposing symbol of the division between Jews and Gentiles, the temple, and he turns it on its head. Now we who once were far off, estranged, excluded, we have become members of God's very household. In fact, he says this again over in 1 Peter chapter 2, in fact, we are the very stones that join together to become the temple. Living stones. We are now the temple. We. And what we might remember from our time in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, back in the summer, is that the temple was meant to be a place that represented, called to mind, the Garden of Eden. Symbols of the garden were built into its design, woven into the fabric of its curtains. Why? Because both Eden and the temple were places where, here we go again, heaven and earth overlap a place where God dwells with us as our Emmanuel, a Hebrew word that means God with us. I hope you're catching this. We are now the place where heaven and earth overlap. Began in the garden, moved to the tabernacle, then to the temple, then to Jesus, now to us. To borrow from the images of the last couple of of the two ages we talked about over the last couple of weeks, we are that place where this present age and the age to come overlap. And we most fully represent that overlap between this age and the next age when we are one in Christ Jesus. When whatever divides us can be set aside race, ethnicity, classism, poverty, wealth, gender, minor doctrinal disagreements. In politics. In her book, Atlas of the Heart, Brene Brown quotes from a March 2019 article in the New York Times entitled, Our Culture of Contempt. The author, Arthur C. Brooks, says this, political scientists have found that our nation is more polarized than it has been at any time since the Civil War. One in six Americans has stopped talking to a family member or close friend because of the 2016 election. Millions of people organize their social lives and their news exposure along, with ideolo- along ideological lines to avoid people with opposing viewpoints. What's our problem? He goes on to suggest something named by the National Academy of Sciences called Motive attribution asymmetry I should have put that up for you but motive attribution asymmetry that is the assumption that your ideology is based on I mean that your ideology is based on love while your opponent's ideology is based on hate then he has he adds this daunting assessment the researchers found that the average republican and the average democrat today suffer from a level of motive, attribution, asymmetry that is comparable with that of Palestinians and Israelis. That was in 2019. Can there be any doubt that things have gotten worse? Now make no mistake, Paul is talking about ethnic groups of people not talking about politics in this passage, but the reality applies to the divisive culture in which we live today as well. When we are in step with God's plan to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth, in Christ, we are told, as we are told back in Ephesians 1:10, we live more fully into the overlap of heaven and earth. We become the place where God dwells. This is a word for our times. And we need to live as if it's true. Because it is. We need to become the answer to the prayer of Jesus, the prayer he prayed for us 2,000 years ago in John 17. May they, he's talking about us, his disciples, may they be brought to complete unity so that the world will know that you, God, sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. If we think that all God really wants is for us as individuals to go and live with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth, our God is too small. For God works not only in the future, but he begins to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth even now. Even in terms of our relationships with our neighbors, God's goal is one new humanity. This is one of those good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do from last week's passage. How are we to live since in Christ we have been brought near to God and to one another? We are to live as one. We are to live as those who partner with God in bringing unity to all things in heaven and on earth rather than those who diminish that unity. We are to demolish the dividing walls of hostility wherever possible. We are to love one another as Christ loved us. We are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. And we are to choose to listen to the voices of unity wherever they may be found. For that is where all things are headed. Anything else is undiscipleship. Today is World Communion Sunday. All over the globe, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation who have been brought near by the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection will take part in this sacrament along with us. It is a reminder to us of the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2. We have been brought near. Here's some good news. Overall, the global church with a capital C, all of us, overall the global church is doing well In these things, when it comes to the division, at least between ethnic groups, I'm not saying we always all get along. I'm not saying that, but overall, historically, we're doing well. Philip Jenkins, a professor of history at Baylor University, has stated that Christianity is, in fact, the the most ethnically diverse religious movement in history. We don't always do it well. We certainly do not do it perfectly, but we are doing it. May God lead us ever deeper into these things.